This is the fourth um, talk for this year, and I'm, as ever, I'm grateful to the Frank Jackson Foundation for sponsoring my professorship. Now, I'm going to be talking about um, national parks and a little bit about National Park City in London uh, tonight, but I want to start off by taking us on a little journey uh, into some of Britain's most scenic areas. I want to explore some of their particular characteristics and to consider how we are or are not protecting them through the mechanism of designating national parks. I'm going to look at some of the controversies that uh, surround the activities that take place within the national parks and in the areas just outside their boundaries. Then I will return us to London where thinking is now going on about whether a related national park city status for the metropolis would be advantageous. So I hope the photography, which is drawn from a, a wide range of sources, will brighten up a dark evening here in Hoban, and that my thoughts will also illuminate you at least a little. Some UK national parks are, of course, truly extraordinary and wonderful in many different ways. And this is where I discover that the thing doesn't work. Oh, there we go. Um, so... Some of you will have, yes, I can see people already in the front row saying, been there. So you're allowed to say, been there, as I, as I go through. So this, this is, uh, uh, again, this is National Park, uh, Northumberland National Park. Uh, it's uh, uh, the site of, uh, in the background, uh, Housestead's Roman Fort. I'm just wondering whether to grapple with the pointer on here or not, but I think I won't. Um, and um, here's another good one, yes. People recognise the part of the Peak District National Park. Now, um, as I said, many national parks, many of our UK national parks are truly extraordinary. They include some of our best-loved landscapes. And about, on average, about 10% of England, Scotland and Wales, and not Northern Ireland, which doesn't have any national parks, uh, about 10% has been designated as parkland broadly for its scenic value. It's that heady mix of geology, climate, ecology, water and land use that makes for a memorable scene. It's almost a fifth of the land area of Wales and here we can see those typical English countryside, um, in this case the Peak District as I said. Now these areas have been designated in order to protect them not only as scenically attractive but to protect them from the pressures of modern life to preserve them for future generations. And I'll say a little bit more about, uh, about that in a few minutes. But I think what I want to emphasise to start off with is that many, uh, unlike many of what globally, there are some 113,000 national parks globally, um, you, um, uh, UK parks are neither owned by the state nor are they intact in terms of natural environment. So... Anybody recognise this one? Yeah, this is the Grand Canyon. Um, uh, if, you, uh, if, for example, you look at uh, national parks in, in America, um, these are, uh, for the most part, are largely owned by the state, whereas the UK ones are not. Even in this one, of course, you can see the impact of people. And if we go back to, uh, certainly... Northumberland National Park, you can clearly see the impact of people here. In fact, the, the slide itself is highlighting the Roman fort. But if we continue on with uh, American, uh, American national parks, those are um, uh, 
It's an awesome park. It's one of the first parks in the USA to be so designated, and it's largely in public ownership, and I would say minimally touched by direct human activity. Now, there are in America some, um, some sites at which the uh, forested national parks have logging, but there is nothing today in the UK which is the equivalent. Of course, there are problems in US national parks. Um, this is a park in Utah. This isn't one I've visited myself, actually. But uh, natural beauty, unique geological features, unusual ecosystems, and recreational opportunities. And now, in, uh, again, in, in this park, this is largely owned by the state. And they are in a position to restrict access. So what they're planning to do here is to, um, is to permit people to come in to the park, but to do it by lottery, because there are more people wanting to come in than they will, they will permit. So restricted access, and that's not something which in the UK, uh, we, uh, not something which uh, in the UK we could do. Um, but there is another interesting point, I think, on here, which is these things change. And of course, the latest administration in the States, parts of the protected areas in state uh, and national parks in, in America are being considered to be sold off for mineral exploration. Um, that was announced in, 2000, uh, in December, uh, about six weeks ago, by the Trump administration. Okay, so nevertheless, large areas here are pristine. They're much closer to being wilderness than anything that could be experienced in the UK. Now, here's another example, a very recent example. This is uh, national parks in, uh, in Chile, recently um, designated as such. Actually, actually, I think it was last week, these ones. Um, the, uh, the parks were, uh, or rather the Chilean National Administration was given some 4.2 million hectares of land by a group of American business people and they've consequently designated them, these major new areas, as national parks, and they're treating them in a similar way to the US. And what that means is that they are removing sheep and fencing, they are promoting a program of rewilding, which is something I'll come back to later, and they are retraining farmers to become conservation officials, because these are owned by the state. You can see the map there, there are quite a lot of sites, not all of them were donated uh, uh, recently, but uh, a number of them were. So it's interesting, though, if you, if you think about that, what happened there is that later in the week, uh, it was after the donation, it was followed by local protests from people that the land was being unnecessarily removed from productive use. And I think that sets the context to the situation in the UK. We are not, in fact, rewilding our national parks, at least not yet, and nor ostensibly are we retraining our farmers as security guards. That's because they're not owned by the state. Problems, of course, with uh, arising from public access do, of course, uh, beset UK national parks. Protection of the natural environment comes into conflict with modern priorities such as urban bypasses. Now, I put up here uh, the, just a slide illustrating some of the ideas that we have in the UK about protection of national parks. And a lot of it is around working in partnerships. So you see there partnerships with landowners, communities, charities, and other agencies. 
Um, and I'll come back to the, some of the wider um, uh, mission, if you like, of the national parks in the UK in a minute. But it's, it's largely about uh, a partnership. And as you see there from the final bullet point, we have about 90 million visitors every year uh, enjoying the national parks. It might be more than that, of course. It's hard to say with local people whether they are visitors or not. Typically, um, we would have a scene like this. This is, uh, this is Loch Lomond, anybody? Been to that one, yeah, and the Trossachs in, in Scotland. Um, it's a very typical scene of a national park. It's upland environment, some water, some agricultural land, and so on. And, and management is a question of working in a partnership. Now, sometimes those partnerships are pretty difficult. This one, here's the, uh, a picture of the, the South Downs. It's uh, the UK's newest park, I think. And uh, the Area, the area of the park includes, as it says on here, not only um, the, the river that you see here, but water meadows, ancient bluebell woodland, and bat-rich habitats. But there are a lot of pressures. So if any of you have ever visited Arundel, you may have spent longer there than you intended because it has the most terrible congestion problems for traffic. And here we see several of the bypass routes which will undoubtedly remove within a, only a few years of designating the park, will remove chunks of the park. Um, they are going to bisect particular habitats. They're going to create difficulties for wildlife corridors. And of course, as with all roads, they introduce noise, traffic, and, and, and nighttime light into an area that was formerly rather peaceful. It wasn't natural, but it was peaceful. Whether those roads will reduce congestion as a whole remains to be seen, of course. You can see there are different options there. Uh, only three of them are on this diagram, one, three, and five. And the National Park is the area in green in the, in the, in the north of the map. So we in the UK tend to be rather more pragmatic, or some people would say cavalier, about our protected land areas than some other areas of the world. And this will be a very interesting challenge, I think, in relation to the Lake District's newfound um, uh, status as a World Heritage Site, which you may have seen in the newspapers towards the end of last year. Uh, heritage sites, other World Heritage Sites, such as the Grand Canyon that we've already seen and, and the Taj Mahal in India, are normally intended to be preserved absolutely in their current state, fossilised, arguably. Now, whilst the scenery of Loch Lomond is stunning and perhaps could be fixed if it were designated as a World Heritage Site, there would undoubtedly be problems if this approach, i.e. fossilisation, were attempted elsewhere. And it, for various reasons, it might not be advisable anyway. And that's, again, something I'll come back to. But that argument has been pursued very well by uh, author George Monbiot, who describes some of the UK's national parks as wet deserts because of their diminished biodiversity and wholly artificial ecosystems. And he suggests, and I would agree, that preservation in this state is actually not desirable. On average, though, our national parks do contain much higher than average proportions of, most, uh, of the most wildlife-rich habitats, such as heaths, fens, and ancient woodlands. Now, it's also true that up to 80% of some specific habitats that are priority targets for conservation 
i.e. areas that are particularly um, uh, uh, in need of being protected, uh, targets for conservation, are within the national parks. And they are the homes of some specific endangered species, such as what I consider to be this rather creepy um, fen, uh, fen raft spider. I say I wouldn't want to meet it, and I think it's actually poisonous as well. Um, but um, it's, it's the subject of a reintroduction programme. Uh, you can see there uh, the, the spider, and it, and it lives in um, drainage channels largely in the fens. Now, the problem here is that large areas of protected lands are uh, not only are they not particularly valuable, valuable ecologically, this one is, but they have also been affected, as, again, as in this case, by intensive agriculture. The main problem in reintroducing the, ra the fen raft spider and other endangered species is the loss of their habitat. It's not the animals itself that's necessarily the problem, it's their habitat. Part of a wider problem associated with human pressures on and adjacent to the parks, which has often left a series of protected areas that are too small to be very valuable and where reintroducing species such as this spider is likely to fail because there simply is not enough habitat left. Our, um, so there's um, a picture taken from George Monbiot's recent article, in fact, uh, about the Lake District, describing them as wet deserts. Uh, I'll come back to this idea of how we look at these landscapes in a minute. But our ideas of appropriate preservation of scenic and valuable habitats, interestingly, do not extend to fracking, the extraction of shale gas, since that is permitted by the UK law underneath parks, if not directly in them. Drilling next to the park and then injecting fracking fluids sideways at depth is permitted rather surprisingly since, as you see, I see the quotes here, in January 2015, uh, the then Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Climate Change pledged we've agreed an outright ban on fracking in national parks and sites of special scientific interest. Ten months later, the Government Department for Energy and Climate Change clarified, in their words, that, of course, surface drilling would not be allowed, but in fact, uh, in those areas, but in a, a piece of secondary legislation, which many people alleged had been slipped through under the wire, companies were allowed to drill down for shale gas on the edge of the park and then to drill horizontally under the park, providing they were below about a kilometre in depth. So environmental preservation, then, is certainly not an absolute priority in UK national parks. I put up just here, uh, just to illustrate this, a few quotes that were said at the time, some of the rationale behind these choices. Um, of course, the, the, the onshore oil and gas representative body pointed out they had a long-established track record of developing oil and gas fields successfully and safely in environmentally sensitive areas. And the department, uh, the DEC spose, uh, spokesman argued that um, these regulations, these new regulations that came in, in in November of that year will get this vital industry moving while protecting our environment and people. Uh, so fracking can take place safely in the national park. And conversely, of course, Friends of the Environment saying that fracking was completely incompatible with 
tackling climate change and actually also some commentary on protected areas as well. So opinions vary and, be quite, uh, uh, and can provoke quite significant controversies. Wildscape, this is not. <coughs> okay, now let me talk you through one or two controversies to int uh, uh, introduce you to a few points that I want to pull out in more detail later. Our national parks are frequently the subject of argument between local residents, park users, park managers, local government, and other people, such as business, as we saw on the oil, uh, on the fracking example. Close here, close to Loch Lomond that I showed in the previous picture, for example, there have been disagreements between local residents, an Australian-owned gold mining company, and the park authorities. Those have created difficulties in starting to process gold ore, which is already being mined in the area, just behind where the arrow is there on the, uh, on, on the slide. Now, at the moment, the amounts of gold that are being mined are rather small. But in due course, the expectation is that 23,000 ounces of gold would be produced from this mine, in particular for bespoke Scottish wedding rings. The local residents, as you might expect, are actually mainly in favour of the operation because this production of this rather unique Scottish gold could well create well-paid jobs and bring in an income to a rather poor region. Conversely, the park authorities and some of the residents are concerned about the environmental impact of what would be spreads of mine tailings, which would come down the side of the hill there, on top of the vegetation, um, uh, as the mining progressed. They're also concerned about pressure from noise and traffic and possible water pollution from mine drainage. So we've got a conflict there of interests. Um, interestingly, again, on, I put it on the slide here, um, one of the proposals is to create, with these tailings, the, the, the waste rock from the mine, to make a sort of artificial glacial moraine so that it would look as if it had come from a glacier. I guess future a visits by A-level students might find that quite uh, challenging. <laughs> now, let's... Um, Switch to the Lake District here. This is uh, close to Honister Pass. I'm looking for people having visited that area. Yes, there's at least one. Oh, three, four, five. Okay. Um, here we have proposals for a zip line to attract adventure tourists uh, back in 2012. And it was alleged by the, uh, the park authorities and, and certainly by some local residents that a zip line would affect the parking locally would intrude on the views of wilderness, or at least of relatively wild environments, um, and would pose other environmental problems as well. Now, the aspirant entrepreneur suggested that the zip line would have minimal impact and would bring new money to the area. But it hasn't progressed in the face of objections from local ramblers. By last month... New proposals for eight long zip lines across Thirlmere in the Lake District, eight of them, were being submitted, with environmentalists suggesting that the charms of the area would be destroyed for fell walkers and hikers by the shrieks of the riders. Conversely, in Snowdonia and the Peak District, 
there are several recreational zip lines and many other forest-based experiences to be purchased, attracting thousands of younger visitors and bringing in income, apparently without much opposition. I have to say, actually, that I thought these zip lines looked rather fun, um, although I'm not, I'm not quite so sure about the head-down position. Um, might not be everybody's choice. And um, the other point I would make is that uh, this is not a wilderness area. This is an area of coniferous plantation, um, and it's not wilderness in any conventional interpretation, of course. So in Derbyshire, as you see here, adventure tourism has attracted generally much less uh, controversy. So across the UK, then, there is not equivalence between these different uh, uh, interest groups. So in Derbyshire, treetop trails, potholing and associated visitors have been very widely accepted. The Peak District is not, however, all harmony. Clashes between, for example, off-road motor and trail bikers and hikers produced severe animosity with police involvement and threats of legal action between different types of users of a green lane. Now, a green lane, for those of you who, who don't already know, is an unpaved road with historic rights of way for motorised vehicles, as well as for horses and pedestrians. Now, I'm going to show you, this is going to be a first for Gresham, I'm going to show you some commentary um, about the conflict, which generated a wide range of apoplectic exchanges on the web. It's going to be uh, a first for Gresham, for a reason you'll see in a minute. Um, but uh, it exchanges on the web as well as on the trail itself, particularly since the broadcast of a BBC television programme about five years ago. Now, the debate is clearly, again, about priorities, but it very quickly degenerated into abusive messages on both sides. Some messages asserted that trail bikers had a legal right to use these public rights of way. Let me show you. That bikes were less dangerous than horses and dog mess, and that, and that uh, bikers' access to these types of exciting routes was anyway rather limited. Indeed, if we carry on, well, here you can see somebody saying, well, um, it's a pain, off-roads and motorbike, because they're a pain when you're walking. And then the second one saying, well, children, horses and dogs off leads are a pain when you're riding down a country lane uh, on a motorcycle. Um, and as, as you see there, only 3% of the available lanes are actually suitable or available for vehicles to drive on. But it got more heated as time went on. So this one, as you see here, refers to the people who were, the walkers who were protesting as grumpy old gits. Um, and um, somebody pointing out, uh, somebody from Staffordshire pointing out that, um, they, that these local people who were using the trail for walking wanted everything their way, but other people have a, have a way of en enjoyment. This is all, the spelling is exactly how it was on the, on the website, uh, too. So, this one is an interesting one, a commentary on the same issue, um, and I think it makes a number of relevant points. This is somebody who's a, a, a trail bike rider. He says, the UK is full of people, usually elderly, trying to customise the country to their taste. Um, I won't read all of it out, but it says people have to have respect for one another. 
Why do I earn less respect just because I'm on a bike? And he points out that he's a war veteran, he served in the Irish Guard, somewhere else he says he has a business in the area, and he says, surely one who has dedicated a part of his life in protecting this country should be allowed, it's a good spelling there, to use roads legally wherever they may be. Now, if you're upset by language, you might need to close your eyes to the next slide. I'll watch to see if anybody does. Um, oh, sorry, it's not the next one. Right. What I wanted to say was in, for these um, strongly worded opinions have shifted um, the arguments because in this particular case, the tracks, uh, motorised vehicles actually are progressively being banned from these green lanes. So the local people, the hikers, their view is actually tending to prevail despite some of the heated commentary. This is where you shut your eyes if you don't want to read it. Um, ban walkers on green lanes, they get in the way of bikers. I'm not going to read all of this, but, and you can read um, uh, yourself the shorthand here. Um, I'll, I'll pause while you read it. Uh, the, uh, the top one is uh, quite good. The, the second one obviously refers to there are right pillocks ruining people's fun. And then um, the last one um, is making a, a different point here, which actually I will follow up. This one says, they, meaning in this case the walkers, don't seem to get the hypocrisy. I love it when they make reference to the kinder march, and I'll talk about that in a second. So they, the poor minority who fought against rich landowners for the right to roam, have now decided that a subsection of their own group, i.e. the bikers, the people who wanted access, shouldn't have the right to roam. Okay. Now, one of the solutions that's suggested for that area, actually, and to, to, to deal with that controversy, is to pave the track, um, which actually removes the, apparently removes the attraction for the off-road bikers. But that, to me, seems a rather sort of nugatory solution, as presumably no one would actually like that option uh, in comparison to the status quo. Now, that last reference there, here, um, the Kinder March, I'll just say a little bit about that now. The, this is a reference to the mass trespass of Kinder Scout Ridge in the heart of the Peak District in 1932. And it's a powerful reference. A, what actually happened here is that a communist-affiliated workers group from Manchester, the British Workers' Sports Federation, organised a hike through land which was owned by the Duke of Derbyshire, very deliberately and they rendezvoused with a second group of city dwellers from Sheffield. There may have been a third group as well, it's the, uh, the, the records are not clear. But they set off, the, the large group shown in the picture here, and the shorts are absolutely wonderful, aren't they? But the, um, the, this large group, well, we only see some of them here, they set off to return to the railway station, having, having trespassed, but they came into violent conflict with... Gamekeepers, the Duke of Devonshire, uh, Derbyshire's gamekeepers, and the police. Six men were arrested, and five were sentenced to jail terms of up to six months to for riotous assembly. Not actually for trespassing, but riotous assembly uh, carried a heavier penalty, in fact. Now, that civil disobedience was very important. It led after extended parliamentary deliberation to the legislation establishing the UK's national parks. 
And as you can see on the quote here, it's been referred to by, um, by Lord Roy Hattersley as the most successful direct action in British history. Now, I have to assume, if you think about what recent things yesterday and so on, he's excluding direct action for the suffragettes in that assertion. But it clearly was um, an action which would stand comparison with the Anglo-Saxon language that we see today on the web. It's also been, of course, interpreted as the embodiment of a working-class struggle for recreational access to land held by a small number of the privileged class for the purpose of grouse shooting and as part of a broader conflict for workers' rights. In fact, the right to roam freely, even within national parks, remains far from universal in the UK, although the pressure continues to mount, and in Scotland there have been some, um, some movements in that direction. Now, let's just see where this sits in terms of the history of UK national parks. You can see here, back in the 19th century, there were uh, a number of movements to open up the countryside for a variety of reasons. And um, in 1931, in fact, Parliament itself was asking for a National Parks Authority. And that um, 1932 mass trespass uh, took place just a year later. It took then, as you see there, another 17 years before the National Parks legislation was actually passed, despite <coughs> the pressure from Parliament. The landowners, who didn't wish to give access, clearly um, were, were important in, in delaying that legislation. So the, the, um, the, the legislation was set forth in 1949, followed quickly by a series of designations of specific areas after 1951 and uh, 1950, I beg your pardon, uh, the starting off with the Peak District where the Kinder mass trespass had taken place and continuing until the latest designations of the South Downs that we looked at earlier in 2010. I think there are 15 parks in total. As I said, it covers about 10% of the land area. It, interestingly, actually, it was a very hard-fought battle to secure these national parks, but we now have the position that all the areas originally mentioned in a report in 1947, the so-called Hobhouse report, have now been designated. Some have taken longer than others to be achieved. Now, I'm going to show you a little video extract. The sound quality is rather poor, as you'll appreciate.
offering their havens of peace home. The fell land where men can hazard in glorious freedom. Men in glorious freedom. And the about women. country meet. A wonderful country. Yet so much of it is spoiled by spasmodic building. Surely all building could be planned to avoid such encroachments. Houses are obviously necessary, but surely such wasteful destruction of nature's gifts is totally unnecessary. In the same way, we must have traffic in our towns. But we need to the change from the roar of vehicles to the murmur of nature's waters. From the daily rush of thousands to the gentle surge of the waves along our coastline, surely the loveliest in the world. Our town parks have to be cramped to let us have the great open country. For a country like this, the Council for the Preservation of Rural England has been fighting a battle for many years, fighting to preserve such unspoiled beauty as this, for instance, from unsightly pylons. All over the country, their vigilance is helping to preserve nature's gifts. This Estdale Valley, the CPRE, was able to save from afforestation, and one of our allied parties, the National Trust, has bought such country as this for the people. But these are only items in the work of preservation. The CPRE are now fighting for great tracts of land to be used as national parks. Other countries have their national parks, like America's Yosemite, over a thousand square miles. The Valley and Falls are only a small part of the wonderful holiday garden. Altogether, the United States have 21 national parks with an area of 12,000 square miles. There are thousands of square miles of country and coast which should be made into national parks, extensive districts to be preserved in their natural aspects and kept for public enjoyment and health. Mountain, moor, forest and heath form nearly one-third of Britain's total area, and it must be protected. Okay, so I'm... Apologies for the sound quality on that. You'll appreciate that's a very ancient piece of film. It's from um, about 1932, I think. But I think you get the general gist of what is being said there, that the Campaign for the Preservation of Rural England and the National Trust, both of which had been set up um, uh, before the 30s, were pressing for the designation of national parks. And indeed, as we've seen, that happened. So... Um, the first 10 national parks in the 1950s, um, uh, under an act, as I said before, in 1949, the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act, interestingly, in mostly poor quality agricultural land areas. Then there was an 11th park in Norfolk and Suffolk, the, Bro the Broads National Park, which was set up by a special act of parliament. There is a slight difference there. It's still today slightly different in terms of its legislation because it's equivalent to a national park, but it protects the right um, of navigation as well. And then the New Forest and the South Downs. Um, so there we see the Norfolk Broads. Now, there's the areas in yellow there that are national parks. Of course, we have a raft of other legislation there relating to um, areas of outstanding nat natural beauty, uh, natural specifically in the title of those, uh, which cover quite a lot of uh, areas. They're in orange. And 23% um, uh, of the national park areas are also protected further as sites of special scientific interest. Um, you will, there's two points I'll just make on there, which I'll come back to later, one of which is National parks cost a pound per person per year to run, which is remarkably cheap, I think. And as it says here, 50% of the population of England and Wales 
live within an hour's drive of a national park. Now, I don't know about you here, but I don't. So 50% of the population do not live within an hour's drive of a national park. Okay, now the mission of national parks was set out and amended in 1995, and this is important. They had two statutory purposes, which were to conserve and enhance the natural beauty, wildlife, and cultural heritage, and to promote opportunities for the understanding and enjoyment of the special qualities of national parks by the public. So those are two statutory purposes. And then when they, have those, uh, they, they carry out those purposes, they also have an additional duty to seek to foster the economic and social well-being of local communities within national parks. So do note, and this is again something I'll come back to in a minute, that those priorities are very clearly articulated and very distinct. As imperatives, though, they nevertheless have the potential to conflict with one another, as I discussed previously in my brief examples. So I'm going to show them as a, as a, as a Venn diagram here, three things in a Venn diagram. If we, think, um, if we think of the case of the Green Lane, where local people are objecting on several grounds to the activities of bikers who are enjoying some of, no doubt, the special qualities of the area. In fact, the gradients and the challenge of sport in a legal off-road location. So, green lanes are gradually, nevertheless, being removed from use by bikers. And as a result, therefore, perhaps we can emphasise the changes in the balance amongst those three sets here. We have the conservation and enhancements of the natural beauty, wildlife and cultural heritage, and we have a reduction, perhaps, in the opportunities for the understanding and enjoyment of the special qualities of the national parks by at least some of the public, the bikers. In fact, those bikers probably are not seriously endangering, certainly, the wildlife and cultural heritage of that area. So any uh, damaging uh, effects on the natural environment are probably quite small, but the weight of opinion, local opinion, from resident walkers has been very heavy uh, against them. Now, in fact, there is a principle, a further principle, which is used in the management of national parks called the Sanford Principle, which basically says, most of the time, and I, this is a matter for a dispute, I think, this is a, a straight quote from, the, from um, the relevant government department, most of the time it's possible to achieve both the original two purposes by good management. Well, there's an interesting one. Um, and it says, if there is a conflict uh, where access is in direct conflict with conservation, then the priority is, if it cannot be reconciled by skillful management, conservation should come first. Okay. Now, if we look, for example, at the gold mine example... Clearly what's happening there is that the social well-being of local communities within the national park is, by the local residents, certainly being seen as very important. They would rather see some damage to the natural beauty, wildlife and cultural heritage in favour of their economic and social well-being. And of course, that is, um, an, again, an area where economic opportunity is very, very limited. 
In the case of the zip lines, perhaps um, enjoyment and access have been pretty important, and the conservation issue perhaps might have to take a, little, a seat a little further back. Now, we could go further than this in unpicking what is intended by the mission. If we just take that first statement, conserve and enhance the natural beauty, wildlife and cultural heritage, we can unpick that a little bit, but we are very quickly into difficult territory. Most of the land cover of national parks is not meaningful, is not natural in any meaningful sense. In terms of vegetation, natural scenery would principally comprise the ancient beech and oak woodlands of lowland England or the Atlantic hazelwoods of the Scottish uplands, which became established in the period following the last ice age but were largely removed by human activity in the Bronze Age. And of course, if we were to allow that to re-establish, we would not, of course, be able to see many of the features that we now enjoy, should we, for, for example, rewild those woodlands, allow them to be re-established. Nor, probably, would our farmers and walkers want to see extensive areas re-established as the habitat of wolves, bears and lynx, which is a fully native British species, even though these two are certainly natural inhabitants. We actually enjoy the, what some people would describe as the chocolate box agricultural scenery. The sheep, the stone walls, the cottages of North Yorkshire, for example, here seen at sunset. The landscape of the Norfolk Broads, for example, uh, is almost entirely a human artefact of pumped drainage, river straightening, and peat extraction from the 17th century onwards. It is not natural in any real sense. These areas would have been drowned under the sea or, uh, uh, and not even would, uh, would not even have been what uh, the poets described as rushy, plashy fen. But today, they're often dried out, shrunken, oxidised organic soils resulting from water extraction within and to a greater extent beyond the park boundaries. And they're heavily used for intensive agriculture. They're also, I might add, shedding their stored carbon into the atmosphere at a heck of a rate. And they have, of course, the boats of the wealthy chugging along their artificial channels. Whereas some uh, concept of restoration to an arbitrary point might be achievable, rewilding national parks to some notion of a romantic, pristine past with ancestral ecosystems and top predators such as wolves roaming around is not, in my opinion, desirable and is anyway impossible. Uh, beg your pardon. Let's just go back to this one. The internal contradictions of this element of the mission are too many to describe. Water in national parks, for instance, is very popular as an element of beautiful scenery, but reservoirs are not in any sense natural. Water is sucked away from several of our national parks to supply cities. Buttermere, for example, may be a more or less natural lake, though its ecology certainly is not, but Thirlmere, by contrast, managed as a water supply for Manchester, well outside the park boundaries. And, in fact, for many years, people were excluded from close access too. So there are contradictions in that way. The Brecon Beacons, too, shows some of the contradictions where we have uh, here a re rebuilt uh, Anglo-Saxon um, settlement, I think it is, 
uh, again, again uh, against uh, a semi-natural lake, so not a natural situation. And the New Forest natural, uh, National Park, obviously, is a fact we find it attractive because of its lighthouses, its sailing boats, and to perhaps to a lesser extent, the large stone walls uh, along the back of this view. Again, not natural, not constructed for wildlife particularly, and... Uh, um, uh, and not directly matching the intentions of the missions of the National Park. Here's another example. Um, conservation is suggested as an imperative, but angling is permitted in many national parks, which may not be consistent with preservation of wildlife, at least as individual animals. Now, beyond that, of course, although there are some heroic attempts to reintroduce specific endangered species of animals and plants, remember that we, as a society, judge it appropriate to pay only about a pound each per year for the privilege of maintaining national parks. It's not much, so presumably our parks are not a priority. And in fact, across the UK, biodiversity is particularly threatened, and it's difficult to see whether national park designation has had much meaningful effect. We do have red lists of threatened species, but wildlife conservation locally and internationally is very problematic. The World Wildlife Fund uh, found in 2014 that between 1970 and 2010, in 3,000 species of mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians and fish have declined by over 50% on average because of unsustainable human consumption. Now that was an international figure, but the UK is no different and the national parks alongside the rest of the UK are participating in the sixth great extinction event of the Anthropocene. Over the last 40 years, for example, Two-thirds of our larger common moths have declined, according to research by Rothamsted's National Insect Survey, published in 2013. And this has occurred, again, despite the protection nominally afforded by the national parks. Moths are actually a rather good indicator of wider problems with habitat protection. I can't stand them, personally. I don't know about the rest of you, but very creepy. But... They are, they are in good indicators, and there is a little bit of evidence that declines are greater in the south, where national parks and habitat protection are thinner on the ground, than in the north of England, but that evidence is not compelling. We want our landscapes and our habitats, even in conserved areas nominally of natural beauty, to be rather sanitised, and we're prepared to see our wild areas and our diversity picked away little by little, despite the feel-good words of wildlife protection. And what about intensive sheep farming, wind farms, and second homes? One would have to ask, when looking at these internal contradictions, for whom national parks actually exist. The National Park's mission makes specific reference to the economic and social well-being of local communities. And indeed, local occupancy clauses have been used to try and to mitigate some of the worst of the exclusions for local residents in national parks. But, they, but national parks are generally desirable places with attractive landscapes, whether or not they're natural, and they will feel the economic pressures of two sorts. For some local people, second homes will drive up prices and reduce their chances of buying houses within the national park, 
Conversely, the arrival from near or far of boat owners, zip liners, climbers and mountain bikers brings money to the cafes, restaurants and shops of the area. So there is strong pressure to accommodate their aspirations, even at the expense of local ecology. The third imperative, therefore, at the bottom of, this, um, of the screen there, the third imperative relating to the social and economic interests of local communities, and I might just stress here, what is a community? Can a collection of second homes be a community, for example? Or a few people working in a gold mine? Or elderly hikers walking a green lane? Are they communities? Whatever they are, that third imperative may not be achievable in conjunction with the first and the second. So consequently, tourism is accommodated, facilities constructed, and wilderness driven back, despite the first imperative. Sarah Hall writes about the Lake District rather eloquently in The Guardian last summer, and with Wordsworth in mind, I think, she wrote, The alchemy of solitude, imagination, and dramatic landscape is undoubtedly inspiring and tonic. Great poets and painters of the past created a valuable, once revolutionary, now definitive legacy here. Walkers and nature lovers flock. But are our wildish spots to transform fully into therapeutic leisure centres and museums? These areas have some of the lowest wages in the UK and are dependent on tourism, which will necessarily take away from the broad sense of conservation, even if we could agree what is appropriate to conserve. Have our national parks then succeeded in fulfilling their missions? The author George Monboyot says they have not, at least in some areas. There is, of course, the danger of asserting that what if, in looking at this from an experimental perspective, since we can only speculate what might have happened without the existence of national parks. Perhaps there would have been more inappropriate development, although, of course, we do have other legislation to prevent that. Possibly wildlife might have been driven away to an even greater extent than, occur than has occurred already. We can, of course, look at boundaries, at what has happened inside versus what has happened outside, but this has its own dangers of interpretation too, as our fracking and water extraction case studies illustrate. Boundaries can introduce other challenges too, displacing some activities to just beyond the park boundary or encouraging particular agricultural practices to operate more intensively in one area than another and in inflicting greater overall damage as a result. George Monbiot talks, for example, about the loss of soils in the face of intensive sheep farming in our national parks, um, the reducing role of uplands in reducing the generation of, of damaging flood runoff and the loss of forests, and draws the conclusion that all is not well. We see here plenty of examples of footpath erosion um, uh, inside and outside the boundary. It's very uh, strong, in fact, inside the boundaries of many national parks um, and uh, sometimes reaches very widespread indeed. Um, here you see some moorland being restored, but it's not an attractive scene within the national park. He also notes, George Monbiot notes, that the designation of the Lake District as a World Heritage Site will e lead to even greater damage through fossilisation. So there are a lot of lessons to learn. Now, we have, nevertheless, beautiful scenery. And I want to turn now 
Oh, sorry, and, then, and, and we have um, people enjoying that beautiful scenery, whoever they are. Now, I want to turn briefly to the issue of London, a proposed national park city. This is an initiative with roots far back in the history of environmental protection. It goes at least back to the mid-19th century. Protecting the London environment began at least to emerge in the 1860s when protection was given to Hampstead Heath, Wimbledon Common and Epping Forest, and no doubt other small areas as well, and some areas were being developed as parks. It's interesting that in 1878, the Corporation of London acquired legal powers to bring areas into its ownership, i.e. to take them out of private ownership, to put them in some kind of corporate ownership for the benefit of Londoners. I don't actually know how much they did in that regard, but certainly the power was there. And then we have a few other initiatives there through the, um, through the 60s uh, up until the present day. And in 2013, a campaign started for London National Park City. How many of you have heard of London National Park City? About a third of you, I'm guessing. Okay. Now, this is a, this is a scheme that has core aims to... Well, four core aims, which I've got on here. Connect more people to nature and the outdoors, improving their health, well-being, and so on. Uh, creating more high-quality green and blue space. Promoting the identity of London as the world's first national park city. Actually, that's rather debatable because Stockholm has a case to being the first already. Um, helping the residents and visitors to appreciate the potential for a rich cultural life anchored in its outdoor heritage and linking people to the national and international family of national parks and other protected areas. There are some other alleged benefits as well, which I'll come to in a second, but the Mayor of London uh, recently backed this, as did uh, over a 1,000 of the local councillors have now signed up to making London the first national park city. And a large number of other organisations as well. This was a launch event uh, around Christmas time for, the, for, the, for this initiative. Now, through the lens of national park objectives, and remember this is National Park City, will these things be met, or will it be, as one of the planning consultants here, Andrew Lainton, who is a frequent blogger, says, a gimmick that underlines the statutory purposes and protections of actual national parks? Now, if we go back to the UK National Parks mission, we have, as I said earlier, these three very art clearly articulated uh, imperatives. Conserving the, national, the natural, natural beauty, wildlife and cultural heritage, promoting understand, understanding and enjoyment by the public, and fostering the social well-being of local communities. Now, if we transpose those into London National Park City, we have a rather more complex picture here. We have four imperatives. I actually have to say I don't think they are very clearly articulated and they are very much overlapping in terms of what they say. So we have, um, as I say, creating more high-quality green and blue space, which is rather similar to conserving and enhancing the natural beauty, wildlife and cultural heritage, but also includes people's enjoyment. And then there's a, at the bottom there, there's about connecting more people to nature, which is 
somewhat similar to promoting opportunities for the understanding and enjoyment of the special qualities of national parks. But then we have these two others re relating to promoting the identity of London um, and an outdoor heritage and linking national and international family of national parks, which perhaps is of less importance. Now, how are we going to do this, and is it going to do any good? If we look at typical uh, picture of London, one might think of it as being largely a built environment. Certainly, this picture suggests it. Uh, there's a little more greenery to be seen in this picture here, but actually... Um, the targets that were set for this are quite, would appear to be quite challenging in December 2017. 50% green space in London and 100% of children connected to nature. Now that's an interesting figure, that 50%, because when we look at estimates of Greater London by land use, already 49.5% of London is green and blue, so the target doesn't seem... Um, so difficult or so far away. And that's made up of a whole mixture of things, public parks, uh, outdoor sports facilities, urban fringe, green corridors, and so on, front and back gardens. If you add, start to add in um, those, it becomes even more um, marked. Um, of course, making London greener will boost biodiversity, reduce flood risk, and make the city more beautiful, says... Um, uh, an organisation called Urban Good. And this data is based on um, official statistics, by the way, uh, based on um, observation and mapping from satellites. So the targets don't seem to be uh, miles away. Already we see that half of London is green and blue. The, uh, the, 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 na uh, the National Park, uh, London National Park City have also produced a very interesting map of London showing some of these green spaces. My younger son is using it to plan his um, cycle riding and running routes uh, around, so he kind of goes along the green pathways and through as many of the parks as he can manage. Um, so that's clearly good. And the benefits are supposed to accrue quite widely. Um, the National Park City will benefit a whole group of people, children, aged communities, and then health, wealth, recreation, environment, and nature. And it's certain that in areas, other areas that have been designated as national park cities, wealth has increased. These are some of the pilot um, suggestions, though, as to how this is to be achieved. And I just show you these because they were the winners of um, competition back in December um, for green spaces. So this one is fairly modest. This is a proposal to green certain spaces along in, in housing areas, in park, private gardens and so on. Um, here's one that says we can do this and we can provide people with um, apps on their phones or whatever so that they can exploit those routes and we can have bus routes that follow them and so on. Um, if we, this is another proposal. It's starting to see here something a bit more radical where we have whole streets turned over to forestry. And here's another example of a street made green. Now, now we're getting really extreme. Now we're backing into rewilding my street. And I want, to, I want to ask you just to think whether rewilding would include the wolves, the bears, and the lynxes, which are being 
included elsewhere? I suspect they're not. I suspect this rewilding is, again, this rather sanitised version with some birds. Not everybody has quite such a, uh, a positive view of urban foxes, I think. But, um, of course, what we're talking about here, um, and I'm drawing to the end of what I want to say here, what we're talking about here is those typical wicked problems that I've emphasised in my previous talks, where we have problems which are very poorly formulated and complex with very uh, interconnected physical, scientific, human and sociological dimensions where lots and lots of different stakeholders who don't agree about what's important and who use the terminology in different ways, rewilding, for example, and perhaps don't even have a clear agreement if the problem has been solved. What would uh, a London... Uh, Natural park city, uh, national park city actually look like. We, yet, we're still working on that. And I think, uh, to conclude, I think if we draw on our experience of what's gone in our, on in our national parks nationally, there are a number of questions which need to be asked about the London national park city. I should say, myself, I have a rather positive view about what might be achieved uh, by it. But I have some reservations at the moment about whether we have reached agreement and had sufficient negotiation around these wicked problems. So I have some, pro uh, some issues here which I've flagged up, drawing on the experience of the national parks generally. So are the priorities appropriate? Do they conflict, for example? Is the initiative grounded in research? And I would draw your attention to the, particularly here, to the commentary about the well-being of people who have access to green space. It's a very attractive proposition. In fact, most of the research that's been done on this, our medical research, has been unable to demonstrate that that is in fact true. It may be, but it's not yet been demonstrated. Um, what type of green space do we want? Do we want grass, mowed grass, or do we actually want wilderness trees? And what does access mean? Does it mean the right to roam through gardens, for example? And have local people actually been asked for their views? Would local people want their street to look like that, for example? At the moment, I think those are answers we don't yet have. And if there is to be a boundary round London National Park City, what is displaced and where will it go? And finally, if you remember, it took 17 years to get from a mass trespass to the designation of our national parks in the UK. There was a mass trespass in London a couple of years ago relating to uh, actually to closure of areas from being available to public access. Um, but I simply leave you with the thought that what would a mass trespass in London today actually look like if that's what it needs to get the legislation through. Thank you.